as churches, I don't think we need to go out looking for people who've experienced trauma because they're already in the room. Hmm. Um, Statistically, they're there. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey, everybody. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. And let me just say we are delighted to have Dr. Keithley back with us today. He's been on sabbatical for this semester, and he's popping in to say hello. Dr. Keithley, how's your sabbatical going? Well, it is refreshing, and that is why they call it a sabbatical, but... It is not all that restful because of all the various writing projects I've been involved in, but I'm having a good time. I'm having a great time. Well, we're glad to have you back on the podcast today. It's good to be here. So today on the Christ and Culture podcast, we're going to talk with Dr. Aaron Smith about trauma and children's ministry. And after that, we'll have another edition of our segment on my bookshelf. But first, it's time for our new segment called Headlines in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about inflation. Inflation. That's a word we've been hearing a lot about in recent days, weeks, and months. But what actually is inflation, and how does inflation affect us? Here to discuss is Dr. David W. Jones. Dr. Jones is a friend of the podcast, friend of the center, been on several times uh, already this season. He's a professor of Christian ethics here at Southeastern Seminary. Dr. Jones, what is inflation? Well, inflation is uh, its just a number that measures essentially the cost of goods and services uh, out there in the economic realm. Uh, and so inflation, it's, it's the word that we use when the cost of goods and services rises. Uh, and as we, I think we've probably all experienced uh, over the last, I don't know, number of months, uh, there's been some pretty dramatic inflation uh, as, as things keep getting more and more expensive. Practically, you go to the grocery store, your bill used to be 50 bucks. Now your bill is more like 60 bucks or 75 bucks, right? That, we see the effects of inflation when we go to the store, right? Oh, completely. And of course, the problem is, is that you know, your, your paycheck has stayed the same, right? You know, but your expenses have gone up, and that is the definition of inflation. We just touched on it here a bit, but what are all the ways that inflation affects us? Obviously, when we go check out the grocery store, that's one way. How does inflation affect us otherwise? Well, essentially, um, in inflation, since the cost of goods and services have gone up, it's going to affect our ability to buy things. Right? Essentially, the cost of money has gone up. That's not too abstract of a, of a phrase. Uh, and so essentially, to, to buy material goods uh, costs more, as we mentioned, at the gas pump or, or at the grocery store. The cost of borrowing money, perhaps more importantly, has gone up. Uh, and so, you know, the interest rate on your credit card, on your mortgage, uh, on your car loan, maybe on your student loan, these have gone up as well. And so essentially, there's, there's really no realm uh, of our economic lives where inflation hasn't in, in some way touched us. You mentioned an interest rates there just a second ago. What is the connection between inflation and the interest rates? I mean, we've seen the news, the Fed raising the interest rates. 
I mean, is this causing inflation? Like, what is the connection between that action, the Fed raising the interest rate, and also inflation? This actually could be a really complex answer, but let me try to kind of simplify it. And so essentially, the Federal Reserve, which is the institution that manages the monetary policy for our country, they have incrementally, uh, over the past number of months, they've raised the the interest rate, the uh, which is actually the rate at which banks borrow money from each other. But that's not really important for the sake for the sake of our our little podcast. But essentially, what's happened is that the higher interest rates have made loans more expensive for businesses and consumers, uh, as everyone ends up spending more on interest payments because the rate has been increased. So what this has caused is those who can't or don't want to afford the higher payments, they postpone projects that involve financing. And so essentially, the the net of this is that more money is going to be taken out of the economy because people are not going to be taking out loans and people are going to be buying fewer things because they cost more. And on top of that, since interest rates are higher, people are going to be tempted to save more because they can make more money on, uh, say, their savings account, for example. So essentially, by a number of mechanisms, when the Federal Reserve raises the national interest rate, which is effectively what they've done, it takes money out of the economy. And so this is kind of in practice how it it works. Um, So say I have a product, I'm selling a widget, but nobody actually wants to buy my widget. And so in order to sell my widget, what I have to do is I have to lower the price on the widget, right? Trying to sell it for five bucks. No one wants it. Four bucks, three bucks. Finally, it sells for a dollar and a half, right? Well, imagine a different scenario where I have a widget to sell, but there are thousands of people out there who want to buy my widget. Well, I can keep raising the price of my widget, uh, and I might be able to sell it you know, maybe for $35. Uh, you know, Someone's willing to pay that right? because there are many, many more people out there who want it. So if, if, you, if you take that illustration and you replace essentially the people who are buying my widget with, with dollars, with money, right? because that's what they're using to buy it with, when there is a lot of money uh, out there in the economy, since there's more money, the price of things goes higher because there are more people or more money that wants to buy my widget. And thus, the price keeps going up and up and up and up. And that's called inflation. Whereas if you can find a way to actually take money out of the marketplace and there's fewer dollars, well, then the price of things will go down. And I have to sell my widget now for a dollar and a half because nobody wants to buy it. There's less money. There's fewer consumers. And so by raising the national interest rate and making it more difficult for people actually to take out loans, to buy cars, to, to get mortgages, because it's going to cost more, right? uh, and to tempt people to not want to buy things because the prices of them have gone up, and to tempt them rather to save their money. Essentially, what the government's trying to do is they're trying to combat inflation by making the cost of money more expensive in essence, uh, taking dollars out of the economy in order to make things cheaper. And so I know there's a lot that I've just said, but essentially by raising interest rates, what the government is trying to do is they're trying to lower inflation because inflation is really a bad thing for everybody because those who have less gradually become less and less able to buy anything, whereas those who buy more 
can tend to afford things longer, even as inflation keeps going up. Of course, you could get to the point where it gets so expensive that nobody can buy anything. That's happened in some economies in history, but I digress. (laughs) Hopefully not here. Hopefully not here. But raising their interest rates is a way of combating inflation. What are some underlying causes of the inflation? Like, What has caused this to happen? Yes. Yeah. And so the reason why we have inflation currently, well, there's a lot of factors, but in large part, it it relates back to the COVID pandemic. When the government gave away a lot of free money, Right, all those stimulus checks that people got, and even more recently, the the whole student loan thing that that happened, uh, and the government has been handing out money really left and right, perhaps with some good causes. Right? I'm not saying it was necessarily a bad thing; it may have been a very helpful thing. But the net result of the government giving out money for various reasons, stimulus checks, etc., uh, is it injected a lot of dollars uh, into the economy. And so thus, you have a lot more, if you will, sort of people who want to buy that widget, which then means the price can go higher and higher and higher. Uh, And thus, inflation uh, has come upon us. And on top of that, you get the fact that during the pandemic, people were kind of shut up and and really couldn't couldn't buy anything. And there's this this thirst for things now, whereas in the past, maybe I, I couldn't, you know, buy a new piece of furniture or a new vehicle because, you know, there weren't any to buy because of supply chain issues or the stores were closed or whatever. And so you have this pent-up desire along with people being flush with cash, and that equals inflation. All right. So our listeners out there are thinking, okay, I understand inflation a little better now thanks to this helpful explanation, but I'm still facing challenges. I, I want to buy these widgets and I don't have all the money to buy the widgets I need to buy, right? <laughs> Everyone wants to buy Dr. Jones's widgets. Um, what are some practical steps that they can take to help kind of counteract inflation in their own personal finances? I know we're, we're not a, that kind of podcast. We're, we're not here to always give out financial advice, but is there something they can do practically to combat inflation? Yeah. And so I guess a few things come to mind. I mean, first of all, I think that we all need to recognize I mean, that inflation, uh, it is a problem, right? And while it may not be necessarily impacting everyone in the same exact way, it has touched nearly everyone uh, in the culture. Those who are towards the lower end of the economic scale have t- tended to be the ones who are impacted the most. Uh, and we need to have our eyes open to that. Certainly opportunities now for, for neighbor love, for care, or meeting needs um, of those who don't have. I think that has to be on the table. But a second thing, you know, as the Federal Reserve has raised the interest rates, uh, and you think, okay, so I heard this announcement, you know, it was, it was raised you know, three quarters of a, a point or whatever it was, and you think that's not going to actually impact me. Well, actually, over the long term, actually, it will impact you. It'll impact you maybe in a couple ways. I mean, if you are saver, you've noticed that you are making more money uh, on your savings account, on your checking account even perhaps, and other savings vehicles. But over the, the long term, it will have the effect uh, of bringing inflation down to a reasonable level. Uh, and so you know, moving it from a 9% you know, down to maybe a, a 2% or a 3%. And so take heart that it is actually going to have an effect long term. And by long term, I mean six months or so, perhaps even, uh, even, even longer. And so as we consider, uh, how, how do we deal with inflation in our lives? Well, you know, it, it's that word stewardship. Stewardship is oftentimes looked at as a dirty word, unfortunately, even by, by Christians. But you know, stewardship, it, it simply it implies the idea that our stuff is not our stuff. 
Right? It's the Lord's stuff, and we need to care for it well. We need to care for it properly. We need to use it generously uh, in the context uh, of our faith communities in our churches. And so I guess I would, would say as far as how do we uh, combat inflation, well, there, there are those practical steps. You don't buy unnecessary things. Uh, you buy the store. Uh, not even the widget? I mean, what if the, okay, <laughs> no, no, not no, even the widget. Okay. Unless I'm selling it. Right? All right, the, all right, uh, all right. Then, then it's okay. But, you know. Ask yourself, you know, is this trip necessary, right? The, uh, is there a, a cheaper form of entertainment? I could, you know, stop and pick up uh, a meal on the way home, but is there something at home in my freezer I could cook? You know, this kind of these, these simple practical things that might help us to spend less money until the cost of goods and services comes down. And so I think just the, kind of these common sense practical things, but I'll say again, we do need to have our eyes open you know, for those who perhaps are, are so toward uh, the lower end of the economic scale that they don't even really have those options, uh, that they can do the, uh, the less expensive thing, because that's actually just their life in general. And inflation has, has now perhaps given them a choice between surviving and the alternative. For those who are in that position, indeed, uh, it's time for us to rise up as the people of God and care for each other in a very similar way to what we saw in the book of Acts, Acts 2 and Acts 4, and those passages that our listeners are familiar with. Very helpful. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for hopping on and sharing with us about what inflation is, what we can do. Thank you for joining the podcast today. Thank you. What does psychology have to do with, wait for it, children's ministry? I'm guessing you didn't expect that I was going to put those two together. What does psychology have to do with children's ministry? Today we're delighted to talk with Dr. Aaron Smith. Dr. Smith is at California Baptist University. She holds the Fletcher Jones Endowed Professor of Research and full professor now of psychology, trained in developmental psychology. Her research explores issues at this intersection of science and Christianity, as well as the practices of effective church children's ministry and how psychology informs anthropology or the way that we approach children in this area. She's also a visiting scholar for us here at the Center for Faith and Culture this year, Erin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, let's jump right in. First of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and why developmental psychology? I am born and raised in Southern California, and I married my high school sweetheart in 2005. We have three kids together. When I was an undergraduate, I didn't know what I wanted to do, uh, which is not an uncommon state for undergraduates. And I had a faculty member uh, at the beginning of my last year of undergrad at Point Loma Nazarene University and pull me aside and just encourage me to think about graduate school. He was the professor for my developmental psychology class, which I loved. And so I thought, okay, so what is graduate school? And I thought, well, I like this developmental psychology class. Let's give it a try. And so uh, I started applying for graduate programs in both clinical and developmental psychology, not even really having a landscape to understand the difference between yeah. the two. Yeah. Ended up at a, a PhD in developmental psychology, which is not a clinical degree. So I'm not licensed. I don't have counseling background. But instead, this PhD 
really is the development of expertise around how people change and stay the same over the course of the lifespan. And my particular area of focus is in children and then more than that in cognition. Okay. So how does thinking change and stay the same over the uh, over uh, childhood? So for clarity, if, if we were to say, okay, what is developmental psychology? Is that the answer? It's how people think, change, stay the same, and all of that developmental process? Yeah. So psychology is the study of human thinking and behavior, and developmental psychologists ask about thinking and behavior as a process over the lifespan. So how is it? how does it stay the same and how does it change, both yeah. thinking and behavior? So why the interest then in children's ministry? So, so much you could do with developmental psychology. Was it the birth of your own children that really got you thinking about this? Why did you approach that intersection? So much of my professional life has been kind of God-ordained happenstance is how I think about it. Uh, So as a graduate student and an early professor, I started at CBU in 2011, uh, my research area was really in fantasy reality and how children navigate those distinctions. And I was interested in that boundary in part because my observation was that some people reject religious uh, faith or reject certain scientific claims because they draw the boundary around what is real and what is kind of made up or fantastical. They draw those boundary lines differently. Hmm. And so I was interested in where and how those boundary lines get put in place in childhood. And so that led to kind of an interest more broadly into religious and scientific cognition. So how we come to think about these two domains of knowing. With that as a background, my longtime collaborator and colleague, Dr. Robert Crosby, who's also at California Baptist University, approached me probably in 2012 or 2013. He's an educational psychologist, a fantastic uh, methodologist and statistician, and, and said, hey, I have this data from this church, but I need, I need a collaborator who has an understanding of developmental theory. And so what started as kind of this one-off paper collaboration has led to nearly a decade's mm. worth of collaborative research building to better understand what's happening in the church in the context of children's ministry that's impacting children's development. Can you, can you double-click a little bit on what you mean by what's real and what's fantasy for children? This is tapping into kind of a classic developmental psych work on theory of mind. So theory of mind is the phrase that developmental psychologists use to talk about our understanding that other people have their own minds, beliefs, thoughts, motivations, and that they can believe something in their head that may or may not be consistent with what they say and do. Mm. And this is actually a really important developmental achievement Mm. that happens um, for for most kids between three and five, somewhere in that range, so about four. Um, And one of the things, one of the ways that you can test for children's understanding of theory of mind, their, their ability to understand that other people have their own minds and thoughts, is you give them what's called a false belief task. So you show them, for example, a picture of a cat, and you say, what is this? And they'll say, it's a cat. And then you show them a picture of a cat wearing a dog's mask, and you say, what is this? And if they say it's a dog, they don't have theory of mind. They've failed to understand that uh, what they see is different than what is. Hmm. But once children have developed this theory of mind capacity, they will say, well, that's silly. It's a cat wearing a dog's mask. Mm-hmm. And that that demonstrates kind of this 
developmental progress that they understand that what they see might not be what is. And so what you say might not be what you think. Hmm. Uh, and that you can behave in ways that are consistent or inconsistent with your own beliefs, for example. Okay, so how does how does this intersect then with children's ministry at churches? <laughs> if you're if you're talking to a children's minister, and this person says to you, "That's fantastic. How does yeah. this help me?" And and, I, and I'm also you know the the dad of four kids. My youngest is six. Help me, Aaron. I, I need to understand this better. Yeah. So in in some ways, I don't know, and and maybe this is a bit of a a, a tangent. But I don't think I would sit down and talk to a children's pastor about theory of mind, partly because it's interesting, it's relevant. If you want to talk about something like autism, you're going mm-hmm. to talk about mm-hmm. theory of mind. But that's not what I want to sit down across the table with the children's pastor and talk about. For me, this interest in how children draw these boundaries was part of the pathway that God used to get me into studying the day-to-day activities of children's ministries. Mm. And so the questions I ask now feel, um, if you only look at kind of the major stopping points of the, of the bridge walk, they, they feels quite far from where I started. But when I look back in my own journey, it's this kind of natural flow where the questions I ask today with my collaborators are more along the lines of, what is it that children's ministries do that help children feel loved and valued and yeah. connected to the people in that ministry so that they can ultimately come to know Jesus? Yeah. Uh, and so that connection is kind of far afield from theory of mind, but God took my original interests yeah. and said, hey, look, I know you didn't go into psychology to study applied work, but that's where that's that's where there's opportunity for you to use your interests and your skills to serve my church and my people. Yeah. And I know your work also has dealt with trauma in children and how, how you can sort of take the work and the research that you've done, make applications for how we can minister to children here. Can you speak to that? Thinking about me telling you about this research as part of my journey, when I started graduate school, the one thing I said I didn't ever want to do was study trauma. Um, and God has a lovely sense of humor, <laughs> partly just because I, I didn't... I, I'm not terribly clinically minded. That wasn't um, that wasn't necessarily my interest. Partly as a reaction to the fact that most of the people I went to school with as undergrads, that's the only thing they wanted to do, and I didn't feel like I fit in with kind of what everybody else wanted to do. And so God had a different pathway to bring me to the hurt that His people feel and say, mm-hmm. "You can still contribute to this conversation." So what what we have been asking. Um, is around this construct that psychologists call social support. So social support is the word that we use to describe the feeling of love and connection with another person. And so if I, as I'm here away from my family, I know that if I had a really bad day, I could pick up the phone and call my husband and he would sit and listen to me and encourage me and, and provide loving, compassionate care for my experience. That's social support. Um, and so we, we wanted to know how do churches provide this for kids because social support is this incredible gateway to spiritual connection with God. Children initially learn to engage with God the way that they engage with Im- his embodied representations, mm-hmm. right? Parents, families, siblings, and church workers, mm-hmm. teachers, these, these kinds of things. As we started to unpack what do these ministries who can provide social support look like, we dug a little deeper and said, you know, some of these ministries have really, I'll say, difficult 
difficult ministries in the sense of they intentionally bring in kids from their community who have experienced trauma. Their parents might not be connected with the church. They have these ministries that really work to bring in kids in their community who have experienced trauma. And yet it's those same kids in these ministries who are experiencing high levels of social support. And we said, Mm. there's something happening there. Mm. And so we did some kind of deeper digging into these particular ministries to start to ask the question, not just how do ministries provide support for all kids, but what do ministries do that are particularly effective in providing care and support for children who've experienced trauma And then further, we said, and does that care and support actually mitigate the effects of trauma? Mm -hmm. Does it help those children develop in ways that wouldn't be expected had this intervention not happened? So this is actually, you want to take a step out of uh, a Christian context. This is an important public health question. Can the church serve as a mental health resource for communities? But then if you step into this Christian context and we think about the call that we've been given as the body of Christ, and we say, how do we serve the children who are not experiencing the love and support or worse, who are actively being traumatized, Mm. exposed to parents who are incarcerated, violence, abuse, these kinds of things, how do we effectively care and provide for them so that they can become who Christ ultimately made them to be? And so we've started looking at what those ministries do. So for clarity, you guys first began to observe the churches who are taking in children who are from these sort of high trauma areas or high trauma experience, kind of high density situations bringing them in and, first of all, creating that social, what you call it, the social... Social support. Social support structure or network. And first observed, okay, this seems to be quite helpful. Now let's dig in further to what's going on. And now you're coming out the other side of that saying, okay, how can we be most helpful? Now now mm-hmm. what are the practices that we can put in place as we better understand who, who they are as traumatized adolescents, really? Mm-hmm. And then as we go about uh, complementing that with our ministries... What are the best ways to do that? So what are your, and this may be a little bit premature in your research, but thus far, what kind of things would you anticipate recommending to churches and children's ministers? Yeah, this is actually not not premature. It's kind of exactly where we are. So um, my my collaborator and his wife, so Dr. Robert Crosby and, and Lori Crosby, who's a, a licensed play therapist, they wrote a book for children's pastors called Trauma Informed Ministry. Highly recommend it, um, and it kind of unpacks the decades worth of research at an accessible level for the daily activities of children's ministries. So how do we create social support, especially for children who may have experienced trauma in the context of worship? Mm. How do we create social support in the context of small groups? What do trauma-informed small groups look like? And I want to pause here and say, when I say trauma-informed, kind of fill in the blank, so trauma-informed small groups, what I'm, that, that's kind of shorthand for saying, what are the practices that serve as lifelines for children who've experienced trauma? Mm. Um, and it turns out that those practices are good for all kids, whether they come from um, spiritually robust and kind of wonderful families with all the right supports. These trauma-informed practices are good for them, but they are mission-critical 
in terms of developmental outcomes for children who come to church without that background. And so when I talk about a trauma-informed small group, we're talking about the consistency of volunteers. We're talking about size. We're talking about um, kind of the, the, the situation. So children who've experienced trauma might be exceptionally sensitive to noise, or they might feel um, there are certain things that they need to feel safe. So there's one boy in uh, uh, a ministry who it kind of came out over the course of several months that part of why he couldn't ever sit down during small group is because they never locked the door. And he mm. felt like, mm. I-, I don't feel safe, so I'm going to kind of watch the door because someone could just come by and take us. Yeah. Which. As adults, we might think, well, that's not necessarily totally reasonable, but given what this child was experiencing elsewhere, that was an incredibly reasonable response. And so what this ministry did is they gave him the job of door locker. And so not only did they assert his kind of autonomy and give him something to feel competent, which is really kind of important psychologically, but they also gave him a job that helped him meet the need Mm. so that he could actually sit and engage with this small group. And so nothing really about the small group time changed, but the the broader context changed in a way that he could actually integrate because the, the volunteers knew him well enough that they could have the kind of conversation to figure out what's the problem underneath the behavior, right? Behavior is children's way of expressing unmet needs, Mm. right? It's true for us as adults, too. I think about the last time I snapped at my family, I was hungry, right? I had an unmet need. And hopefully, as I grow up, I can learn, develop in maturity and character such that I can keep these impulses at bay or otherwise have a snack before I open my mouth. <laughs> but children... Psychologists uh, call that hangry. I don't know if you were, read that. I know. I got to open I get my Snickers. Um, children are absolutely in that learning phase. And so all of their behavior is an expression of an unmet need, right? Yeah. It could be that they're hungry or it could be that they're not experiencing psychological safety because the door's not locked. Hmm. And at home, that means something. Yeah. I'm curious. It's, um, I imagine that one example, you could give a million more. Here's very practically as a pastor, I'm curious, how do we go about gathering that information? Because I'm imagining um, even our own ministries in the community where my church is, there's a lot of, uh, when, I, when I went back to serve in this church, one of the things that I noticed about some of the most recent demographic uh, information was that there was a high trauma, uh, ex- experiences of trauma. And I don't, I don't know how they're defining that. I don't know what all the, the particulars are. Um, and particularly among um, the kind of 30 and below crowd. So as we've thought about how can we reach into some of these areas that we know a lot of trauma is being experienced there, we want to bring them in, children, uh, adults, all the rest of it. We want to bring them in. But how do we go about gathering this information about the nature of their trauma? Is it, is it okay to ask these kind of questions? Is it legal to ask these kind of questions? Do we talk to social workers? Do we talk to parents? How, how do we go about trying to, to better understand the situation without, you know, not minding our own business yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, therefore, trying to create the conditions that are most helpful for that social support network? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I I would start by saying, as churches, I don't think we need to go out looking for people who've experienced trauma because they're already in the room. Mm. Um, Statistically, they're there. Children, adults, teenagers. So the question of how do you figure out who needs this ministry, I think I want to sidestep that slightly, though I'll hopefully circle back around to it, by saying 
in the context, for example, of children's ministry, I don't think you need to find those children if you have a ministry that is trauma-informed, given how I've kind of previously defined it. It's just the way the ministry is done. So it's effective for all children. And now you've also provided the kind of support that this potentially unspecified or unidentified group of children who've experienced real and pervasive trauma, that they're also able to have that same kind of support because that's how the ministry is. Hmm. It's not like a special uh, a special activity or I need to give this child a badge and treat them differently, but rather we've organized the ministry in a way that is sensitive and responsive to the fact that children often communicate in their behavior mm. so that we can try to identify what that behavior is telling us and organize the ministry to give space as yeah. appropriate, but then also help build up the capacities um, to, to engage in a way that they might not be coming into that ministry because of their trauma background. Yeah. So I do want to circle back because I'm not trying to ignore the question that I think you're also asking, which is, so how in the context, especially as you move out of children's ministry, and there might be a little bit more, I show up on Sundays, and then I go home for the week, how do you figure out who we might need to reach out to a little bit extra to get them involved in small group or Sunday school or these other kinds of ministries? And and I think the answer to that is very simple and really difficult, hmm. and that's relationships. Yeah, I mean, even in yeah. the context of, of children's ministry, the stories that we've heard about the children who've been able to thrive in children's ministry kind of in spite of their trauma, those stories didn't come out week one. They came out over years in some cases. Yeah. Um, and so it takes slow and dedicated effort and commitment to really the mission of the church mm. Because there will be Sundays and weeks where you think, I don't think that any of this is doing anything. Mm, yeah. You know, this child or that person is still disengaged. They're still, you know, acting out or doing all these other things. But I think that as the church, one of the things that we've been called to is a commitment to God's process, mm. which is sometimes instantaneous and miraculous, but in my experience, it is often slow and uncertain. Yeah. And that God doesn't ask us to engage in these relational uh, activities to meet the needs of his people because we are guaranteed an outcome, but rather because that's part of our personal formation mm -hmm. experience that God then can use in the formation of the other. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. So in other words, uh, do I hear you right saying it's less about making these kind of auxiliary ministries st strictly for people of trauma and, and drawing additional attention to it and more setting up one's children's ministry in such a way as to be as accommodating and, and sort of sensitive as possible to especially the more common traumatic kind of needs that people may have or especially children may have. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I also think that's much more practical. I right. think about right. a number of churches whose children's ministry might have 15 kids. Right. How can you have a separate children's ministry for the one child who has extreme trauma that you right. know about, right. um, besides the fact that that would be very dehumanizing for right. that individual and really removing them from the very social support that could be healing. Mm. Um, it's also not practical. So one of the things that we recommend 
is and, and churches who have high levels of social support tend to do this naturally is they realize their limits. Yeah. And so yeah. they find who are the helpers in the church, maybe the, the educators, the counselors, um, that if there is an issue that they don't know how to deal with, that they have someone who they can decompress and figure out. So how do we how do we address this? Mm-hmm. And what kinds of supports can we do for this particular child in this particular situation? Because we can't just create a parallel ministry. And then if there's no one in the church, who are the who are the community helpers? Right. And who are the points of contact in, contact in the broader community or another congregation where there might be some kind of collaboration to say, we don't know how to handle this, mm. but we love Jesus and we love these children or these people who need this um, kind of support. So how can we do that given yeah. what we have? Yeah, that's so helpful because I, I can only imagine uh, maybe – ministry leaders or pastors listening to this might think, oh, no, I've, I've got to do one more thing or one more ministry or one more volunteer kind of thing, especially in smaller churches, mid-sized to smaller churches. But there, I think there are good community ministry types, uh, type opportunities that we can tap into and not feel like that we have to sort of bear all the overhead that comes with sometimes those new responsibilities. Let me ask you this, Aaron, what are the most common forms of trauma that you've encountered among children's ministries up to this point? Um, I'm not sure there is a, a common form. The way that that psychologists talk about trauma is the the phrase, if anybody likes lingo, is um, you can talk about an ACE score, adverse childhood experience. That's the, where the ACE comes from. And so these adverse childhood experiences, there's like a checklist. And you can ask how many of these adverse childhood experiences has someone had and actually the number of these experiences that that children have are predictive of things like mortality risk in adulthood. Hmm. I mean so this is a lot of the work on trauma and adverse childhood experiences is really nested in health research uh, because trauma has long lasting effects not just in terms of our uh, our social emotional experience but in terms of our physical health uh, and ability to exist and thrive in this world. And so adverse childhood experiences include things like um, a parent being incarcerated, um, uh, drug or alcohol abuse in the home, um, physical abuse, emotional abuse, neglect. Um, we've In our interviews, we have um, d- divorce. We've had parents who were murdered. We've had um, Kind of any number of parents who were very ill for a long time, some of whom ultimately recovered and some of whom died from uh, after a long-term battle with illness. And we're talking about – so our research has focused on elementary school-age children, so first to sixth, maybe seventh grade. Um, and their children don't have all of the faculties to process these. I mean, think about what it's like if you as an adult were to experience one of these things, someone abusing you, someone um, neglecting you, a a dear friend or a family member being killed or passing away. Um, Even if you can cognitively understand what happened, that doesn't make it any easier for you to navigate. Hmm. Now, think about that in the context of a seven-year-old who doesn't have the same cognitive faculties or yeah. understanding of the broader world that you do and ask them to process through that. Yeah. Right. And at this age is when we're laying down. I mean, we continue to do this for our life, our whole life, but particularly in childhood, we're laying down all the implicit memory tracks that we use 
for the rest of our lives and subsequent interactions. And so when we have brains that tell us the world is not safe because of these things I've experienced, um, that's that's really problematic. Yeah. And so these are the ki- kinds of things that kids in our ministries, they're experiencing because they're, they live in the same world that we do. Yeah. So I, I'm, I have my pastor head on for a second. So help me understand this. What, what is the goal that I'm after here? Because just recognizing uh, our church is we're not full of psychologists. We're not full of, you know, clinicians. We're not full of all the answers. So from a, from a ministry perspective, is the goal to create that space for social support? Is that sort of goal number one? And then goal number two is to do our best to resource them with the kind of help or the kind of professional care that they would need to, to further develop them or further understand their background and then try to help, help to heal through some of that. And then third being as well, and most importantly with the church, to introduce them to Christ and the hope that we have there. Is that a good way to think about goal one, to create social support, two, to resource them as best we can, even pointing them to professionals, and then three, introducing them to Christ? Is that a, is that a fair set of goals? I, I think so, in part because I think that that third goal, having children meet Jesus, is so important but for children who've experienced trauma, there is a giant wall between them and Jesus. Mm. And it's really the job of the church to deconstruct that wall. And so how do we do that? By showing them in our embodied forms, this is what love looks like. Mm. This is safe. Yeah. You are valued. You are loved. And when they experience that in embodied form through the people of the church, mm-hmm. which we call ministry, when they experience that, we slowly take the bricks from that wall down so that mm-hmm. when we say, and why is all of this so? And we point to Jesus in yeah. an explicit way. Yeah, they've already experienced it in their hearts. Okay. So let me draw an, an analogy here. So I've, I've told my kids often, we, I want our home to be a place where your friends or the people you go to school with can come and just be in our home and experience a, a hopefully a safe and stable environment. Not a perfect environment, but a safe and stable environment for many kids who just don't have that. Is it fair then to think that for, for our purposes of this conversation, that one major goal is just be a place that is a safe and stable environment? It's not a necessarily a, a new ministry or changing a million things, but just mm-hmm. be a safe and stable place because this may be the only safe and stable experience some of these kids will ever have. Yes. And I think our interviews have bore out that some churches are much better at that than others. Um, We have children who will say, I look forward to Sunday because the kids here don't make fun of me. Yeah, yeah. But they will talk about how their teachers at school yell at them, their parents don't love them. But when they come to church, they can be themselves. And I think that there is something very freeing about that in a way – in a way that we don't need to overcomplicate. But the reason yeah. that I think it's important for us to have this conversation is that psychology has tools for ways to help make that so. I believe that every pastor and every children's ministry has the right goals in mind. We want to love children so that they can meet Jesus. And what our research has demonstrated is that those those good goals and good intentions are executed better and worse. Yeah. Right, that there are better and worse ways to make that happen. Yeah. But you don't need to be a huge church with millions of dollars of resources to do it well. Yeah. That it just might be a couple of small tweaks in the ministry 
that will allow you to better love those kids so that we can see them hmm. um, see them in heaven, right? We can experience life everlasting with these kids because we loved them the way Christ asked us to. Tell us the name of the book again that Dr. Crosby wrote on this. Uh, it's called Trauma-Informed Ministry. Okay. Probably, I, I will say, so you can find it on Amazon, um, but I would also point uh, your listeners to Reach Hurting Kids Institute. So that's kind of our institute. We're running a, a research study right now looking at how do you train children's ministry volunteers to better uh, to, to better uh, serve the kids in their ministry. And so on that on our website, if you search Reach Hurting Kids Institute, you can find out about our workshops, uh, about some of our research, as well as there's a link to the book there. So this season of our uh, Christ and Culture podcast, we're focusing on spiritual formation. So let me let me just throw a softball to you here. How does your work and your research and this conversation intersect with spiritual formation? How does it not? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, this phrase spiritual formation, I know why we use it, um, but sometimes I think it is easy to over-spiritualize the idea of spiritual formation so that we miss the actual person standing in front of us. And I really see the work that we're doing in terms of how can we create children's ministries where they are loved and accepted by the volunteers, by their peers, by this fellowship of believers so that they can meet Christ, so that Christ can change their hearts, Mm. right, and form them into who they were ultimately created to become. Um, And this process of becoming and Christ-likeness happens in the context of that body of believers. Yeah. Aaron, super helpful. A million other questions I would love to ask you, just as a parent, not least a pastor and professor. But thank you for being with us today. And I hope you're with us all year as scholar in residence. Uh, I hope that we can have you on the podcast again very soon. Look forward to it. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading now. Today, we have with us Dr. Steve McKinnon. So, Dr. McKinnon, what's on your bookshelf? Robert Lewis Wilkins' book entitled The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. Uh, It's uh, basically a patristic systematic theology. Uh, Wilkin is a uh, great patristic scholar, um, has written Christians as a Roman saw them, uh, a handful of other both theology and history books related to patristics. But the spirit of early Christian thought uh, lays out how Christians in the early church saw uh, the gospel of Jesus, how they uh, expressed the gospel of Jesus, and how they practiced the gospel of Jesus. The most fascinating thing about the book is uh, in the in the outset, he says that he went to, to study all of this uh, information, patristic theology, and what he discovered is as important as things like the resurrection, which is obviously central to the gospel, uh, the practices of the church, the liturgy of the church, worship, etc., that fundamentally what was most evident in early Christian thought was the uh, presence of the Bible, what he calls the omnipresence of the Bible in early Christian thought and practice. And so this is one of the reasons I think that uh, everybody ought to read this book. I read it 
Um, I try to read it every year. Sometimes it's uh, a little less than that, uh, but uh, try to read it as, as often as possible um, just to see, once again, how early Christians understood their faith, the faith of Jesus according to the apostles, and uh, express this gospel and live this gospel out. The name of the book is The Spirit of Early Christian Thought by Robert Wilkin. So thanks for listening to this week's episode. And if you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. If you didn't enjoy it, then don't rate it at all, please. But I know you did, and so please give us a five-star rating and review it at Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. We'll see you next week.